Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Oval Roach.
Welcome to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer and co-host and engineer, call screener extraordinaire, Chris Morales. In the building. 646-564-9909. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call in and speak to us. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go on our show website. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. You can also listen to the show via the call in line. If that's your only means to do so, then by all means. Do it. Do it any way you can. Yep. Um, that was our first tribute in, you know, in honor of uh, Glenn Fry, the co-founder and one of the lead Singers, guitarists, and co-writers of the uh, Eagles, who passed away yesterday in New York, I might add. There you have um, it. Joe turned me on to that group back in the day, and my girls have grown up listening to it on road trips, <laughs> listening to them along with that. Ever you know, since. I, I listen to everything. R&B, hip-hop, classic rock, soft rock, easy listening, you name it, so... Um, and I think the Eagles have kind of covered with their catalog a lot. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Of, of uh, various uh, genres. Very popular band. Of, uh, of music. And so um, even though their their last album as a group was in 2007, um, they were very popular on the tour. And they weren't considered, quote-unquote, you know how these groups do the oldies, you know, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They weren't considered that because I mean they were pulling in, from what I heard, like sixty, seventy million dollars a year on, on touring. And, Sounds about right. And this is like from their, not from their new stuff from their '94 album when they came back together, but from their hits from the '70s. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So uh, that particular song that we just played was actually their first hit that put them on the map. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Jackson Brown. Okay, I heard the name, yeah. Okay, Jackson Brown. Um, He actually wrote the song, but was stumped in the second verse. And Glenn Fry came in with the second verse and completed it. And, of course, he then sang it. Yeah. Um, Jackson Brown has since sung the song, like, you know, Sure, sure, sure. and uh, he 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 said he has said in interviews that he he could have never have done with it what Glenn Fry did. So wow. Um, so throughout we'll be when we do our music we'll be uh it'll, it'll be all Eagles music playing tribute to the to the Eagles. So I'm sure there's millions and millions of fans like myself in mourning and uh, especially the band members. Yeah. And his brother. Not his biological brother, but just you know his wingman. Everybody, you know, we 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 dudes have our wingman. That's you know? true. And his wingman was Don Henley, his co-writer. Yeah, you know, they wrote all the you know the ninety-nine percent of their songs and their hits was written by Glenn Frey and Don Henley. Wow, yeah. And so you can imagine, for, after forty-five years, uh, they met in nineteen seventy. Um, he he passed away at sixty-seven. So what was that? Twenty-two, twenty-two years old. Yeah, he just was, about right. Going out to meeting in L.A. Wow, in the seventies. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, incredibly popular group transcends 
the decades, there are songs that they wrote that everybody recognizes, even if they don't know, oh, that's the Eagles, the younger crowd, they know the song. Mm -hmm. And they wrote many a popular song. So happy to do the tribute today with our music breaks with some Eagles. Yep. All right, let's uh, let's get right to it. I must say, looking back, this has probably been one of the most exciting uh, divisional playoff weekends in recent memory. I would agree. I would agree. Some of the wildest, wild comeback, craziest, <laughs> weirdest stuff that I've ever seen going on in football games. Back, yeah, all the back and forth, mm-hmm. and I agree. I agree. I, minus minus the Kansas City Houston game, which was just a dud from the start. You mean the Kansas City uh, Patriots game? I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. But the no, the um, the Seahawks game where you just okay, that game was over before it started, and then Taylor, all of a sudden, Taylor they, two halves. They're going to come back. Yep. And um, the Pittsburgh game, the Pittsburgh Denver game, nine to eight, twelve to thirteen, were just a mm. one point mm-hmm. the whole way. Yeah, it was wild. It mm-hmm. definitely was. And for all out there who thought Antonio Brown was faking after giving a serious blow to the head because mm-hmm. Cincinnati players and fans were calling out, he actually didn't play, mm-hmm. couldn't pass the concussion protocol. So a fake it was not. Mm-hmm. Um, I always have mixed feelings about the Patriots hmm. because I'm a Belichick fan from his almost 20 years with the Giants. Yeah. Okay. Or 20 years with Parcells, call it, minus right. his time with the Cowboys. Right. Um, and I'm a fan of Brady as meaning I'm a fan of great players. Football fan. Right. I mean, no, I'm a fan of great players. Like, I didn't like the 49ers back in the 80s, but I was a fan of greatness. Yeah, because so, if you're a fan of the game, you respect greatness. the great players, even right. if they don't play on your team. Right. right. But I don't like I don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> this is the guy's fifth straight championship game. It just reminds me, he's from, he's from this area. San Mateo, California. San Mateo, Sarah High School. It just reminds me of the spoiled, uh, privileged, <laughs> and he's not even a 49er, but that's just what we thought back in New York, that these guys were so finesse even though they had a big, great defense, so it was a misnomer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they just were so too smooth and just, right, right, you know, right. ugh, we hated it. You know what I mean? Had a little Steph Curry in him, smooth as silk. So, um, yeah. And but you know what? And I've, I've thought that about Brady, too. But I've definitely seen enough games of him in the playoffs where he's getting up and putting his, the, the crown of his helmet into a defender and getting Oh, no, no, no. I'm not questioning his toughness. Even at yeah. 38, I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm, talking, I'm just talking about the fact that, again, the Patriots. Right, know, right. You know, oh, no, I like, totally feel that. And I think the AFC, or at least their path, was so weak. 
It was this year. It okay? was, and even with going against Denver, because they're not going against a guy that's a hundred percent healthy, right? And where even though Brady's thirty eight. He's like a 28-38 compared mm-hmm. to Manning, who looks like a 59-39. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. So, um, yeah, it doesn't get much easier than a first-round bye and then home against the Chiefs. That's, yeah. that's, well, people thought the Chiefs were going to give them a run for their oh, money. but no way. No yeah. way. Sorry, Alex Smith. I mean, I was rooting for you a little bit, but okay. no, no way. All right, and in closing, can you believe the back-to-back – not the back-to-back, but uh, Aaron Rodgers with these damn Hail Marys. Hail Marys, yeah. And that, and that's now three in two seasons, right? If you count the regular season one against uh, the Lions. Ah, oh, the regular season one against the Lions. And then it happened to them, I guess, when Seattle, when uh, what's-his-face, Golden Tate caught that one against Green Bay. Yeah. But, yeah, no, the Lions and then now. The yeah, one where they got screwed. But, right. Uh, He's got a great arm. You can't. There's no. no oh, he does. It. And and he doesn't even look like he has a great arm. Meaning he's not six five and no, you know, uh-uh. two thirty five or anything like that. So the hell marries. He could be. He could still be behind center for the Niners. They chose Smith instead of him. Well, yeah. But we'll, we'll move on. Right, moving right along. We'll move on. Uh, our topic. We're continuing our series today on the Ten Commandments of Recovering. Last week we did numbers ten, nine, and eight. Number ten, thou shall not covet the life, the material things, and the friends of others. Number nine, thou shall be honest with thyself. And that one's going to come up often. And number eight, thou shall not cheat thy recovery. Today we're going to do seven, six, five, and four. Okay. And we will start with number seven. And yes, these are takes. I have to do my disclaimer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. These are takes off of the religious Ten Commandments. But our recovery commandments are not religious-based. So please don't come after us. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> For uh, desecrating the Ten Commandments. All right. Number seven. Thou shalt not exchange one addiction. Or another. Now, where and when does that happen, and 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 where, when and how, are those in recovery susceptible to that? Is a question I'll throw out to the universe. Okay, I, I mean, first thing that comes to my mind is folks who came in with more than one. Addiction. Okay. So poly substance abuse. Poly substance abuse, or uh, folks that came in with more than one addiction that transcends the scope of chemical dependency. You might have been an alcoholic and a gambling addict. Mm-hmm. So you were drinking and at the casino daily, nightly, whatever. Right. You come in for your drinking problem because maybe that's the the easiest one to identify on the surface or the one that you feel you're most concerned with and you get clean off drinking and go right back out to gambling the kids' college fund away or whatever the case may be. Right up to Reno. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a big one that comes to mind for me, folks who had more than one addiction. So I agree. Um, there are many who come in 
for example, who you ask the question, what's your drug of choice? And they'll say methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. However, they may have started out back in the day smoking weed, then started doing this, then started doing that, and then ended on methamphetamine. And that's what kind of drove them, you know, into the ground. And then as a result, blessing in disguise into treatment. Right. And so there are some who think that, well, you know, when I was smoking weed, I was doing okay. Life was good. Life was okay. Yeah, that's... It wasn't until I started really hitting the heavy stuff, quote-unquote, you know, meth and whatnot, that my life started spiraling out of control. Mm-hmm. So there are those who think that, hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with smoking a little weed, okay? And we're not getting into the discussion that we've we've had. That's for another day about the recreational use, medicinal right. use, and all that. We're just talking about, you know, there are people out there who are addicted to marijuana and they can't do jack with their life because of it. Exactly. Okay, that's what we're talking about. And so it is dangerous for someone who's trying to get in, you know, get onto that recovery highway, as we often call it, and uh, they think that. You know, hey, as long as I stay off that meth or that heroin, or as we say back in Harlem, that heroin, okay, as long as I stay off all that, you know, what's wrong with smoking a little weed? I'll be be all right. And so what usually ends up happening is we usually end up seeing them again. (laughs) What happened? And the story's always the same. Whether it be, hey, I just started drinking a little, just a little bit, you know, a little bear here, bear there, whatever the case may be. And next thing you know, I'm standing on the corner uh, with a crack pipe. <laughs> right. I don't know right. how it happened. Right. Okay. Or I started taking a few totes of a joint here and there. And next thing you know, I'm, I don't know how they even use meth. They smoke it in a pipe also, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. With a meth pipe. So you don't want to exchange one addiction for another. And not just as you uh, eloquently pointed out, not just substances, you know, we don't want to go from a substance addiction, lick that, and next thing you know, you become a shopaholic, a, a gambling addict, or, a, you know, addicted to something that is negative and destructive. So mm-hmm. let's just put it all in that basket without having to name every single one. Right. We like to say it's okay if you become addicted to something that's positive and constructive, mm-hmm. whatever that may be. People get addicted to playing, quote, and I'm going to say this with quotations, the word addicted, to playing golf. Right, right. I don't like golf. I'm just saying it. Golf, uh, you know, playing dominoes or window shopping or bowling or working on the car or, you know. Right. But it's yeah. all positive stuff, constructive hobbies. stuff. Hobbies. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, yeah, we don't want to... Gambling's not much of a hobby. No, <laughs> no. Some people think that they can pay, you know, pay the rent by gambling and end up just losing the rent, the rent money. Mm-hmm. So that's number seven. Thou shall not exchange one addiction for another. And I and I can add just a really quick kind of story. I'll mm-hmm. cut out the the major details, but uh generally 
I had a friend who was in recovery, who'd been clean for quite some time and began drinking. Um, I didn't know that this friend had become drinking. It was given to me through secondhand information. And as things would have it in a close kind of circle of friends, he felt the need to talk to me about it. He was kind of a mentor of sorts to me when I was younger and kind of new in recovery. Mm-hmm. And so we went out to dinner one night. And he, he, you know, knowing that he kind of played that role for me, he wanted to explain himself as to... He ordered a 40, you call 45? <laughs> right, his mentality and why he made that decision. And kind of like you were explaining, almost verbatim, his rationalization to me was, for me, relapse is not having a beer with friends at dinner or at a game. Mm-hmm. He said, you know... When I was at my worst, I was shooting heroin behind a dumpster. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's relapse to me. Mm -hmm. So drinking, that's not what my addiction looked like. Mm Kind of exactly like you were explaining. And uh, kind of exactly like you were explaining. It was maybe less than 90 days later that he was... Behind the dumpster? (laughs) Behind the dumpster shooting heroin again and right back into treatment. (laughs) He had completed treatment at a particular program and Mm -hmm. then... Re-entered that program again mm-hmm. um, and was on like a 28-day methadone detox and AWOL mm-hmm. before that 28 days was up. And I've never heard from him since. And he was a relatively close friend at mm-hmm. that point in my life. Um, so, yeah, don't don't let yourself be fooled. Don't trick yourself into believing, you know, at my rock bottom, this is what it looked like. So this over here is not so bad. Right. Because it's not really about where you ended. Wherever you ended is what got you into treatment. But think about how that train began. Mm. Kind of. It's very insidious, uh-huh. that process. Right, right. Real quick. Uh-huh. Number six, thou shall not kill. And we've just added the messenger. It's actually number six in the Bible, too. But we just said, the messenger. <clears throat> Leave the staff alone. <laughs> so... This ties into, I think, what I mentioned last week just in in passing, how as a counselor, one of the most difficult things in being a counselor of people who are trying to get this recovery thing going is trying to convince someone that they can live their life without those substances of abuse. Yep. And... Oftentimes, to be an effective counselor or an effective friend or an effective mentor, etc., we talk about often in the program environment that word, what's that word, that word acceptance, and how you start accepting things things in your immediate environment, things in your immediate social circle, and so on and so forth, and then that leads to this, you know, that, you know, all the way down to a negative road. And being the messenger means that sometimes you got to be perceived as the bad person because you're not accepting anything. You're holding people accountable. You're calling them on their stuff. You're showing responsible love and concern. 
I was just about to say there there's a word for the bad person. It's called honest. Mhm. And so oftentimes the the lash out, the lash back is towards the messenger in whatever form that messenger, you know, messenger takes. Yeah. Um, sometimes it starts before the person is even in the recovery realm. Uh, you know, family members trying to steer them into to, towards help, and they get lashed out at you know by the person that's you know in the throes of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, initially those are the messengers. You need help. You're an addict. You're behind the dumpster. <laughs> that's right. Shooting up. Got to get yourself cleaned up. Got to get back on the right track. Got to get your life back together. So people don't want to hear that. And we always have told people in our program, if you hear less, if you hear at least thirty days, your get your the the enjoyment of your get high is ruined forever. Oh yes, <laughs> and that's been echoed by many people who have actually. Mm-hmm been through that yes and 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 that is a goal of mine to make sure that that occurs <laughs> and and how do we do that and that, and how how is that accomplished well we want to make sure that at the very least and we say 30 days is that mendoza line that if you're in a program for at least 30 days you've learned enough just enough to Start the understanding process of, hey, what, why, why, why do, am I doing what I'm doing or did what I did, and how did, how did it all get started? And when you're out there and you have no idea and you're just blissfully get getting high and you're just blissfully ignorant, it's one thing. But when you can light up a joint and smoke it and all of a sudden start self-analyzing yourself and then. <laughs> <laughs> and confronting yourself on why you're doing what you're doing, you're not having such a good you, you time. Know, it's not. It's not enjoyable anymore. And so, at the very least, we're going to ruin ruin your future uh, get high experience. That's funny. That and that again has been echoed by many people who have come through the program and done relatively well. Completed perhaps the residential or inpatient portion of the program, gone out and had a relapse, and come back and tell the stories of how. If nothing less, they will never enjoy getting high again, even if they continue to do so, because there's no more blissful existence of ignorance. You now know, and you that cannot escape you. Right. Unless you are um, using a substance that gets you to a state of where you know not what you're thinking, saying, or doing. Well, so like, you belligerently know, drunk. Yeah, drunk or just so high on, you know, whatever that you're just out of it. Right. But if you still have your uh, wherewithals to think and uh, analyze and, and be thoughtful, um, maybe in the early, maybe in the early hours of the get high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Exists. Um but I think for you know the heroin users, especially those who are shooting shooting it up, um, I think once 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 the needle goes in and the button's pushed, uh, they, they might be past that point. But but 
prior to the needle going in, that's that window for them where they know. To, yeah, exactly. Where they, exactly. you know, I know why I'm doing this, and I just don't want to deal with it. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, thou shalt not kill the messenger in whatever form that messenger takes. And as I noted, I'm not just speaking to the treatment environment. The messengers oftentimes are way before yep. the person even makes in the treatment. Yep, that's very true. If they uh, are fortunate enough, and yes, I'm using the word fortunate enough, to make it to jail. Why do I say fortunate? Because we always say jail or death, jail or death. Yeah. So if you make it to jail, you're fortunate. And their messengers in there. Um, but usually the, fir- the the first, you know, messengers, that's plural, that you encounter are your family members. You know, be it a spouse, parent, siblings, you know, cousins, aunts. You know, those are the first to know if you're if there's some semblance of connection to the family. They're, they're the first ones to know that something's not right and the first ones to call you on it and the first ones to try and push you into the direction you need to go. So, thou shalt not kill the messenger. Number five, honor thy supporters and positive, emphasized in capitals, positive peers. What do we mean by that? Well, I think that a little self-explanatory, but it's important to acknowledge it because I think sometimes that's easy to take for granted. Mm Mm-hmm. That's easy to take for granted. It has a tie-in to number six. You first say, don't kill the messenger, right? Don't, hurt, hurt, yeah. don't, don't hurt him. Now that you've put down your weapon. Now, now, now <laughs> that you've put the weapon down and you've allowed the message to take effect, uh, in the recovery world that we live in, in that circle... I'm not talking about the general society. I'm talking about the recovery society. You have your supporters. It could be family, friends, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And your peers. Peers can be your actual peers, that, you know, your peers in your life. Okay. Mm-hmm. Again, that could be friends, et cetera. Um, and then peers that you, peers, people that you have met during the recovery process. That are kind of in that same wind time window that when you entered your recovery mm-hmm. uh, process, that's what we mean by peers. So it could be someone who's anywhere like we would say like a couple of months before you, a couple of months after you. That's the window. Yeah, yeah. I would I would say forty five after before. If you're within that same three month realm. Okay. So. Why do we say you got to honor thy supporters and positive peers? Well, ultimately, you, you yourself, are the ultimate one responsible, the ultimate one in charge. Because you got to do this even if there are no supporters and even if there are no peers. You got to do it. Right. It starts with you. But for most, that's not the case, fortunately. For most, there there are people who are supporting them in their challenge to uh, succeed in this recovery endeavor that they're taking up, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if they have had a long road on the other side, on the dark side. 
They've been out there 15, 20 years, 25 years, and they're now just starting that long road back. Well, that requires some support. You know what I mean? That requires some strong, strong peers. Okay, we're trying to reverse 10, 15, 20, 25 years of a certain behavior, lifestyle, yeah. certain, you know, mindset and so on and so on. So um, there's going to be people supporting you through that. Um, and if you're lucky, your family's still there. They haven't just, you know, bumped you off and said that you're no, you know, there's no hope for you <laughs> after 25 years. <laughs> right. But you know, despite what you may have put them through, that they've always kept, you know, the light on for you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when you have turned it around, and regardless of whatever the uh, the uh, the motivation was, whether it was you going to jail or something, you know, whatever, you know, hopefully it wasn't anything too traumatic, right? But, right. Whatever the motivation for you to to start that process of wanting and desiring to to really turn your life around, that it's going to require support from strangers, people you don't know. So when you come in, you don't know me when you come in treatment. You don't know me from Adam. Right. So you're going to have to believe at least or have some faith that I have your best interest at heart. I want to see you do well. Okay. And then there, we hope that there are positive people, family, and friends outside in general society that are pulling for you, including then the people that are within the treat, treat, uh, recovery and treatment environment that are going to be pulling for you, working with you, holding you accountable, and all that good stuff. And there comes a time when, you know that expression, you know, paying it forward? Yes. Okay. So there's, there's going to come a time when you 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 honor that by ultimately becoming that. Right. You ultimately become a supporter. You ultimately become a positive peer. And in essence, that's how you ultimately honor your supporters and honor your positive peers. If I may, you can't keep it unless you give it away. Oh, you might just. Yeah. <laughs> we got to be very careful. We haven't finished our elite eight. <laughs> we might be dropping lugs here or there, here or there, <laughs> giving it away. We don't want to do that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that's uh, and you know I think that that transcends the recovery realm and the recovery group and touches real life in general. Mm -hmm. That typically speaking, you honor those who have supported you in one sense or another by paying it forward, like you say, and becoming the person who can now be there for that next individual who, it doesn't need to be addiction, but could be struggling with anything. Right. Being there for somebody else because at some point in your life when you were struggling, somebody else was there for you. Right. Mm -hmm. Number four. This one is one of my all-time favorites. One of the reasons it is is because I've witnessed, I have been a witness to people in treatment exuding an attitude of being better than. <laughs> right. Okay. Yes. It's happened on I, more than one occasion. 
most of this witnessing occurred in New York, okay? We'd be sitting in the van, in the daytop van, driving throughout the city, you know, either coming, you know, going to a destination or on our way back up to uh-huh. the facilities in the ups in the mountains and you have to go through the city, right? And you see people who are in obvious despair in, in, their, addiction. in, in their addiction. Yeah. And I've heard comments, you know, from people in the van uh that weren't too, you know, appropriate. Sure. And I would turn around at, you know, this is twenty five years, so pardon me, folks. <laughs> this is back in the day, my yeah. early counseling days. I would turn around and yell back there, remember where you damn came from. It wasn't too long ago that you were just right out there sitting on that street corner. Right. In obvious despair and in an obvious state of addiction. All of a sudden, now that because you're on your high horse, all of a sudden, now that because you have a few months of good food, good sleeping under your belt, and you're starting to look a little better, feel a little better, okay, and getting your wherewithals about you, okay, you now think that you can sit up in this van and look down on someone who was in the spot that you were just in three or four months ago. Yep. When, if anything, you should be in silent introspection and have a sense of not only gratitude for being in that van at that very moment in time, I'm grateful for being in that van. So that's what should have overwhelmed you internally, a sense of gratitude, and then a sense of, you know, I hope that person can... It can get help. Yeah, it can find theirs one day. You know what I'm saying? So that used to piss me off. Well, yeah. How how soon people forget where they came from. So mm-hmm. number four on the Ten Commandments of Recovery is remember where thy came from. I don't know if it should become more the came, but it says came. Remember where thy came from. Yeah, it makes sense either way. Okay. Because if you forget... For whatever reason, time and distance, okay, maybe your 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 living experience has grown materially or otherwise, mm-hmm. okay, and so you're far removed, either in reality or in just in your own mind, who knows, imaginary, far removed from where you once were, right. And so now you're you're you know you're you're batting your eyes and you're looking you know or you're thinking down upon those who are in the street, in the gutter, um, when you were once there, figuratively or literally. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because you can be down in the gutter in despair, living in a very in your nice, mansion, in, yeah. in your mansion. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, so. You must remembering where you came from. Number one keeps two words, but they're they're connected words. <laughs> keeps you in a constant state of humility and being humble. Keeps you humble. Yep. Okay. And therefore, when you come into contact with people who are either in obvious states of despair or addiction um, or just in 
obvious states of life's challenges, okay, that you have some sense of, uh, if not sympathy, empathy, if it's an experience you can identify with. Right. Because if that leaves you, and just bringing it back to just recovery specifically, Mm -hmm. if that leaves you and you are now on a high horse, (laughs) the chances are very high. The record is, history is littered. The floor is littered (laughs) with many that got on the high horse and unfortunately was one of those bucking Broncos. That's, (laughs) That's right. And they were thrown off the high horse. And found themselves back on the ground, reaching for a hand that was, again, reaching down to pick them back up. So, I mean, that one is uh, near and dear to me because, I mean, you know, just hearing it and witnessing it, oh, it just hit a nerve with me so just big time. And so my my ears are, are, are extra sensitive to that when I'm listening to the clients talk amongst themselves. If I ever happen to be in a van and we're, you know, driving throughout, you know, around and about locally. And we're going to see people who are in obvious states of addiction and despair and what have you. And I always like to hear what they say, you know, and, and, and how they talk about, you know, something that they see, yep. um, what their connection is and, and, and how it verbally emanates from them to see if they are in their where they are where they should be in terms of their humility. Yeah. So there are very few ways for me personally in this field that someone can catch my ire. All right. Is that spelled I R E? I believe so. We'd have to look that up, but that is one of them. Remember where thy came from. It's also really dangerous if you are that individual who begins to, uh, I want to say, mentally removes yourself a lot farther than you actually probably are removed. Because a big piece of turning your life around is that feeling of what it was like. That is typically someone's initial motive to Mm -hmm. make a change. You can have everybody in the room telling you, hey, this is something you're not doing in the right way, or this is an unhealthy behavior that all of us see in you Mm -hmm. that you may want to consider changing because it's going to lead you to places you don't want to be. But if you don't actually believe that, it's going to be a very difficult task to make that change. Typically, you're only going to do that if you're motivated yourself to make that change. And a big part of anybody's motivation to change something is because the way they're doing something currently doesn't feel good. Is not working out for you? And so you desire to do something differently. Well, if you begin to, in addiction, and we'll speak about, you know, drug addiction specifically, Mm -hmm. forget all those things that added up to you wanting to make a change. Maybe it was not being able to pay rent and being evicted or not knowing where your next meal was going to come from or 
you know, that moment where you're going to have to look mom and dad or wife or husband in the eye and know that you failed again. And all these things that made you feel a way that was strong enough to say, I need to make some changes. If you begin to get away from that and don't at the very least, and I'm not saying you need to beat yourself up every day, but at the very least, keep that in your back pocket, that little ticket that reminds you why you're doing something different now. Mm-hmm you're only one step away from being right back there and having a real-life wake-up call as to, oh, yeah, this is what it felt like, and this is why I wanted to change to begin with. Because, you you know, there you're either working toward it or working away from it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't remember, it's it's that easy to slip up. And I want to be clear, <clears throat> that attitude in and of itself is not and we're not saying that it's an an, an automatic sign like a, it's not like a negative reservation like it's right like we know for a fact that if you don't deal with this negative reservation you're going to live it out and it ain't going to be a happy ending what we're speaking to really with this uh number 4 commandment is ultimately I think about um like I said humility and I mean, you could be succeeding in recovery and, and for a long time, and like I said, time and distance removes you so far from where you once were or and or where you once saw others back in the day, and <clears throat> you know your current life situation and so on and so forth is so much different it's, you know and, and so far removed that you don't even realize the attitudes that you've taken on and so on, you know, and, and mindset you've taken on. You're not even connected anymore to the quote unquote, anything having to do with re- recovery on a daily basis, mm-hmm. weekly basis, monthly basis, or even a yearly basis. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? You've just like, man, I made it out of that cave. I'm, pff, I ain't never going back in any right, way. Shape or right. Right. So, um, but you can't run from your past. You follow you wherever you oh, go. You can, you can run. You can run from it, but you can't outrun it. You can't it. outrun it. <laughs> right. Right. You, you can try and run from it. Um, but I, I think those who are humble, those who show humility, and those who remember where they came from—not that you have to live there, where you came from. But, right. Right. But right. There's going to be points in your life as you move further and further away where there are opportunities to. Uh, behaviorally exemplify that you remember where you came from. Right. Whether it's a teaching moment with your children, when you see someone who's obviously suffering from addiction and so on and so forth, and they may say something, and that's your opportunity to teach them about humility and and understanding and so on and so forth, Um, you know, for the obvious reasons. Because, I mean, that person 10 years from now could be doing great things. Exactly. Right. And it's exactly as you said. And, you know, and that speaks to my point. And you communicated that pretty clearly that we're not saying you have to live in it Mm -hmm. and that that that's how you identify yourself from this point forward. Yeah. But keeping that just keeping that in the back of your mind, just remembering that, you know, having that thing in your back pocket that like, you know what? I'm imperfect as well. And I was once there, too. And if anything, to me, learning that, and that's actually a big part of recovery, 
if you're doing recovery right, and no matter what realm you're doing it in, I think it's somewhere within the 12 steps of AA that it can be related to some of those steps. And however you're going to get recovery is about being being humble and remembering where you came from. And it isn't that that I think a very, very essential character trait or quality in an individual is born or is made. Because if if you're doing it correctly, then it removes you of being a from being a judgmental person. Mm-hmm. And if you can keep yourself from casting judge, you know, casting judgment upon others because you remember where you came from and that you're not perfect and you've been through it too, it just makes you it, it that transcends many many moments in your life and in in many different realms too. Your your profession, your social circle, your relationships that you can be that kind of a person with that kind of a quality and it makes you a better person generally speaking because everybody's got a story to tell. Mm-hmm. And if you lose sight of that, you know, that's where a problem becomes. I think in the 12 step uh genre, step number 10, not all of it, I would say the first half of it. Um the whole step is con- this is the whole step number 10 continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong promptly admitted it so i would just speak to the first half of continuing to take personal inventory because when you're when you are doing that then commandment number 4 will always be exemplified that's right okay so here we are we are down to number four. Let's go over them again from the top. From the top, from number ten. Thou shalt not covet the life, the material things, and the friends of others. Yep, number, number nine. nine. Thou shalt be honest with thyself. Numero ocho. Oh, Espanol. <laughs> Thou shalt not cheat thy recovery. Moving on to lucky seven. Thou shalt not exchange one addiction for another. The big six. Thou shalt not kill the the messenger. Number five in the top five. Honor thy supporters and positive peers. And where we're ending today, number four. Remember where thy came from. And there you have them. And the top three, this is the, the teasing bit on the radio, you got to tune in. Top three to come. Yep. The top three of the Ten Commandments of Recovery will be the final part three of three. Uh, so in keeping with today's uh, other theme of our tribute in remembrance of, uh, tribute to the Eagles in remembrance of Glenn Fry, who passed away yesterday, we will. Uh, we're at the top of the hour, almost there, probably yeah, around close. there. Okay, yeah. so we'll uh, we'll play another one of their uh, top tunes from the mid '70s, and uh, come back on the other side uh, with our recovery support time. Sounds like a great plan. We do see we have uh, at least one caller on hold here who will be looking to speak during recovery support time so bear with us and we do have some x-files a lot of x-files a lot of x-files so enjoy the music uh we thank you for being patient with us and we will get to all who want to speak on the other side (laughs) 
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Couldn't help but laugh. And it's the same people, right? That's right. Mulder and Scully. <laughs> that's that's interesting. That they they can't come up with new shows. They just have to recycle old shows or steal from old themes, theme shows. Welcome back to Roach on Recovery. We're now in our recovery support time. And we're going to start out with a little bit of uh, our mail segment which we call the X-Files. James from Yosemite, California, wants to know, how long should a recovery program be? And then how does your permanent sobriety improve when you stay in a longer program? As to the first part of the question, how long should a recovery program be? There's no um, predetermined cookie-cutter amount, length of time. Uh, depends on what the individual needs and, 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 and how, you know, how deep they are into the addiction, addictive uh, lifestyle. Someone who's, you know, just started using within a year may not need the modality or the intensity of treatment that someone that's been using for 10 years. So it all depends. Depends on the individual. No cookie cutter service. And then how does your permanent sobriety improve when you stay in a, in a longer program? It's statistically not even a, a debate anymore, not even an argument. It's 
been empirically studied that the longer you are in a treatment program, regardless of whatever modality, whether it's outpatient, whether it's inpatient residential, the longer you participate, the better the chance of a positive sustainable outcome. Empirically proven. It's not even a matter of opinion anymore. No, I can't, one plus we one can't give two. an opinion. It's it. been studied empirically. So um let's do one more before we hit the phones. Jesse, oh goodness, this is unfortunate. This is sad. Jesse's from St. Louis, Missouri. And they just lost their football team. The Rams, St. Louis Rams, moving to Los Angeles. How unfortunate. Sorry, Jesse. His question, though, is why is addiction hard to escape? Well, I'll give you a rudimentary answer, and that is because... uh, Whatever drugs you're doing illicitly feels good, which brings to the next question. Well, why do you need a, a, a unnatural means of feeling good? What's going on? What has gone on? What's the cause? What's the purpose? I mean, we we can just go down the wormhole with that. I think you answered that before you even took the question. Didn't he just lose his football team and he's from St. Louis? Yes, yes, yes. That's, <laughs> that's why I had sadness in my voice. <laughs> I have I I can't have any empathy cuz I don't I can't identify with that but I can have sympathy for him. True, true. But but the reality on that is is that the team didn't belong to them. It came from Los Angeles anyway. They're just going back home. That's right. They, it's like LeBron going back to Cleveland. They were on vacation. How can you blame Louis. somebody for going home? Right. Right. They're going home. Uh all right, let's go to the phones real quick and we'll get back to X-Files. Sounds good to me. John from Los Angeles. We just got a new football team. Welcome to the show. Right. How you doing? Good. So I have this friend who's still in his addiction. Um, he drinks a lot. But it seems like he always needs help with food or gas or there's always some reason. Um, he knows I won't buy him alcohol. But should I still help him with his other needs or... Should I give him some tough love? It's kind of hard because it's kind of hard because you know, in my addiction, there was always somebody there to help me. So I kind of feel like I should give it back, but then at the same time, I don't think I'm helping him in the long run. Well, you kind of halfway answered your own question, so that's a good thing. Um, it really comes down to how well you know who you're dealing with and, 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 and all the, you know, the background stuff, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, if you, if you know that they really need food and, and let's say you're not in a position to buy them food, but you it's easier to send money for food and you know that they're using the money for food, that's one thing. But if you know that everything that you send is going towards feeding the addiction, then yeah, tough love has got to, you know, you got to pick up the phone and, and dial tough love and and bring some tough love into the arena. As right. hard as it may, as hard as it may be, 
if mothers well, if mothers can do it, you can do it. <laughs> That's true. You know, I know the the money's going towards food. However, if he didn't buy the alcohol, then he would have money for food. So in a sense, it's still going towards his addiction. You know. Okay, I'm going to say something that might shock you. Yeah. And Mr. Producer, this may shock you, so hold on. I agree with you 100%. Okay. Is he an alcoholic? So if he's an alcoholic, he can't really stop drinking because right. there's a possibility that if he stops without being medically supervised in a detox, he could die. That's true. So, and I'm only talking about alcoholics right now. So on one hand, even if I know that some of the money is going – or that, you know what, you could buy – just like you said, if you stop drinking and spend money on alcohol, you can have money for food. That's not a uh, a medical reality for them because they're drinking for more than one reason and also to make sure that they don't die from stopping drinking. So we have to put that into consideration. So – it's a it's a tough tough deal tough situation. Um, I don't envy you, uh, but we've all been there. We've all experienced it. Um, and ultimately, in the end, you got to do what feels right in your heart. Yeah. And understand. Once you send the ten dollars, once you send the twenty dollars, okay, you can't get mad how, how it's used. Right. You know, you follow me on that? That's very important. Because sometimes people say, okay, here's $20, and they find out it was used for drugs or alcohol, and they get mad. Right. No, you, right. you have to, if you, can, if you can gift it, okay, then you've released it, and you're, you just hope that the person does something good with it. But if they don't, it's given. You follow me? Yeah. Yeah, okay. that's a new way to look at it. I was yeah. I was looking at it the other way. Yeah, don't don't like it's got a string on it. Like you know, well, it's still my twenty dollars. No, you've gifted it. Right. <laughs> so. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. All right. Enjoy that football team. Yep. All right. Bye bye. Sometimes we want to, you know, when when we have people that are close to us that are experiencing you know, addiction, you know, we're all faced with these decisions, you know, obviously they need to eat, they need a place to stay and blah, 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 blah. Okay. Right. You know, but there comes a time and it didn't happen in my family because my mother said to me clearly, you know, you know, wait till, wait till, wait till you find yourself in that same position and see if you can make the decision you're asking me to make. Yeah. When we were telling her, you got to put, you know, talk about my brother, you know, you got to put him out, you got to put him out. You know, and when she said that to us, it kind of backed us up mm-hmm. because we're not in her shoes, you know, and this is her child, just our brother. Right. Exactly. You know right. What I'm saying so mm-hmm. what we feel about it is totally different from different what dynamic. she feels about it. Totally different. You know dynamic. What I'm saying? So and we would get mad when we find out that she, you know, she's given the money and so on and so forth. But that's her child. Mm-hmm. So we had to come to terms with that. Right. As difficult as that was. Right. And even me, you know, having a little knowledge, you know, behind me and saying that that's not helping. Right. <laughs> you know exactly. Right. But still, 
that's her child. Can't help her. It's just my brother. It's so there's nothing we can do about that. It's true. <clears throat> All right, let's go to um, Michael from Redwood City. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hi, how are you doing today? Good. So the question that I have is, um, what are some things that I can do to enhance my life without making, uh, like, without using methamphetamines? Do you have hobbies? Um, yeah, I do. Like what? Um, like, I, I like to draw, um... Uh, let's uh, make music. That's about the two things that uh, I probably, you know, really like the most. Okay, that's fine. I mean, that's more than a lot of people. Um, so I'm I'm just going on a presumption. Let's just say you are committed towards uh, a new life, a new direction. Yeah. Uh, leaving this the drug scene behind me. How am I going to? Uh, what are the aspects I'm going to change in my life to to help occupy my time and occupy my thoughts and so on and so forth? Well, it comes with, you know, not only just everyday living, going to work and, and, you know, coming home and all that stuff, but engaging in things that can positively and constructively occupy your time and also being able to, and this is very important, Mike, being able to be okay with doing nothing. Be o- being okay with boredom. And, well, I mean, and what do I do for that? Because, like, I know, like, when I, when I was on meth, it was kind of like the lifestyle. It's not just the drug, but it's also the, the lifestyle that goes along with it. You know, the the, the chaos and the, the fast-pacedness and, and stuff like that, where I find that when I'm sober and it's just, it's, it's mundane and boring and... and <laughs> <laughs> it 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 seems that way in comparison yeah to the uh the ex- the I, I'll call it the imaginary exalted life of addiction that mm-hmm. everything you know everything was happening real fast and you know it's like you were you are like living on the scene and so on and so forth but if you take a step back and really look at what was going on, it was craziness. Yeah. It was madness. And so when you come step out of that madness and everything kind of slows down so that you can take control and go slow, okay, mm-hmm. it might seem like, wow, all of a sudden I've, I've moved to Mayberry all of a sudden. Life is so slow here. But no, that's how the process goes, okay? And And believe me, it is going to speed up quickly. And that's where your commitment to your recovery and your ability to see what's going on and what's happening and knowing when to put the brakes on comes into play. Because it does not stay slow. It's just in the beginning. Because it's such a comparison to what you were doing. Okay. Yeah, because like right now it's like I'm in treatment and it's like, it's not so much the drug that that I crave. I really don't have any cravings for drugs right now, but it is like the fast-pacedness of that kind of lifestyle and it's just like it's it's kind of some days it gets nerve-wracking. And that's when thoughts of, you know, uh, wanting to leave treatment and things like that happen. So, 
Our topic for today was the Ten Commandments of Recovery, and we covered numbers seven, six, five, and four. And number seven was, Thou shalt not exchange one addiction for another. So you should not say, Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to use methamphetamine, but I still want that life mm-hmm. that came with it. No, you got to put that. All of that goes together away. That does not mean that doesn't mean uh-huh. that as you rebuild your life that you may end back up in a fast paced life just because of how your life you know the things the choices you're making the things that you're doing in your life you know what I'm saying I mean you you're mm-hmm. a music you play music you draw you know you know I don't know if you belong to a band or not but that's you know that's a kind of a fast paced life in itself yeah okay I was thinking comments too what what do you think about this idea of like I think maybe I might be a, kind of a thrill seeker. And I was thinking maybe taking up jumping out of planes. Well, that that is not negative or destructive, other than if the parachute didn't open and you died. But <laughs> right, <laughs> people do that. To me, it's no different than someone that feels comfortable riding motorcycles at high speeds, or someone riding high-speed boats, or someone you know, like you know, skydiving or bungee jumping and all that stuff. There are people that are thrill seekers. To me, there's nothing wrong with it. If that's your thing. It's a positive. It's not a negative. Okay. Well, thank you, then. I appreciate okay. the input that you gave. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. All right. You have a good night. All right. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Another word to describe it, or we we hear people call the, those folks adrenaline junkies. That's right. That term is out there. <laughs> Rock climbing is another big one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm good getting my thrills watching my team either win or get pounded on on the weekend. That's you like that's to, where I'm getting my you, excitement. You like to pl- stay planted on terra firma. <laughs> that's ex- that's exactly right. Firm <laughs> ground, baby. <laughs> All right, let's go to um I don't know if this is Ian or Lan. Is it Ian? It's, it's Ian. Ian. Yeah. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you. How can so, we help you, sir? Um, I know it's a question I, I've had for myself. Actually, it's not, it's not a question I've had for myself. The question I have for you would be, um, you know, once you're done with recovery, yeah, I guess. Well, I guess when you're done with recovery, you're still in recovery. But once you're done with the program and you're and you're back to leading a normal life, is drinking responsibly okay? Ouch! <laughs> One of those controversy questions. Yeah, because you know, like I've never really personally had a problem with alcohol. I've never, like, I, I guess you know, I've drank into excess before when I was younger, but it's never been like a consistent thing with me. I've never really. Alcoholism was never really something I dealt with. Um, I was drinking alcohol occasionally before here. My girlfriend does not and has never used drugs, but she likes to go to the bar and have some drinks, and I usually do go mm-hmm. with her. And when I'm done here, is that some not to worry about? Well, I've I've been very consistent with my opinion on this matter, and Mr. Producer has been consistent with his. And so I'll state mine, and then Mr. Producer, you can state yours. Um, when when you go into treatment for whatever substance, 
And so the expectation is during during that process until you get to the stage where you're kind of finished with the intensive part of the treatment, you're now out, you know, doing your own thing. You got your life back and you're and you're just living. OK, um, there are people who 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 don't drink at all. Yeah. Or they might just be event drinkers, like they drink at New Year's or at the wedding or at the birthday, and, and that's it. You know, they're, they're not bringing home six-packs every day, seven days a week, okay? Yeah. Ultimately, if alcohol was not a problem for the person, ultimately they have to make that choice for themselves, whether or not alcohol is going to be a part of their life in a responsible manner. Now... The only thing, the only caveat is the word responsible because it's very subjective. Who gets yeah. to define that? Is it the person who's drinking or is it the person who's watching them drink? You know what I'm saying? And so yeah. you are left to be your own judge. And um, one of our uh, Ten Commandments of Recovery, number uh, nine, Thou shall be honest with thyself. So ultimately, you would know whether or not you are drinking at a problem level. And so it ultimately is your choice. And ultimately, if you don't have a problem with it and didn't have a problem with it before you came into treatment, that's going to be a choice you're going to have to make when you are done yeah. and are moving on with your life. That's my opinion. Go ahead. <clears throat> uh, you know, something that I might add is, for one, to answer your question specifically, and I don't mean this to be funny, but it is the truth, there's there's one way to find out whether or not drinking is a problem for you when you leave <laughs> treatment, and uh, that would be to, like, like you said, if you're going to go out with your lady and she wants to have a couple of drinks, have a couple of drinks and see what happens. Um, what I would stress to you, or... or the, you know, something I would get you to think about the question is how important is it to you to find out? If if you must know whether or not you have a problem with drinking, there's no two ways about it. You want to know whether or not it is possible for you. There is only one test and you will go out and you will drink during a social event or with your lady or whatever the case may be. And then take it from there and see what happens if you must know. The way yeah. I think about it is kind of like a philosophical approach is how important is it for you to find out what are you willing to give up to find out whether or not you can handle drinking because let's give it a possibility even if it's just one in a hundred there is a possibility that just by virtue of you being in a program and having demonstrated addictive behaviors in the past that alcohol could be a problem for you. And yeah. if indeed it is a problem for you and you go out and you drink, we all know how that story ends. Things could spiral out of control relatively quickly. You could find yourself back in treatment or jail or whatever the case may be. So the this is why I ask you how important is it for you to find out because you have to put those things on a scale and answer that question yourself. Are you okay with never knowing whether or not you could handle drinking and never trying it and just going on about your life? Or is it so important so that you are going to give it a try, even knowing in doing so you're running the risk of it was a problem and now you're going to have to deal with something that could get hard to 
hard to deal with. I thought he yeah. made a statement in in terms of where he was at in terms of his drinking, that he stated that it was not a problem for him prior to treatment. And honestly, well, I don't, yeah, I don't state it. Just that he he's it hasn't been a problem for him, but he doesn't know, I guess. And, and that's how I took it, that it hasn't been a problem to date, but you're not sure if it could become a problem or if it is okay. Maybe. I don't, I don't uh, honestly see it becoming a problem when I leave, like as far as me becoming a full-fledged alcoholic. What I would mm-hmm. maybe I, I could see happening would be me it leading me back towards doing something else again. Uh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, okay, one thing leading to another. So, I, I mean, I think in that regard, that premise still stands. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, it, it, if there if there's even a small possibility that it could lead you back to where you don't want to go, then you have to ask yourself, you know, how, how, how much are you, right, how much are you willing to risk or how important is it for you to find out? And some people need to know and others... Yeah. You know, may never know because they're not willing to to risk whatever it is they may lose. If kind of like you said, maybe the end end game wouldn't be you becoming a full fledged alcoholic, but it leads you back to the things that you're trying to avoid. Yeah, yeah. It ultimately, it's still a choice you have to make. But yeah. in considering all of those factors, of course. So I hope we've sufficiently confused you. <laughs> No, uh, you guys kind of just, you know, basically told me what I already knew. You know what I mean? Just okay. kind of reassured, I guess. So, okay. No, no confusion. Thank you. Uh, all right. Good stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling uh, the show. Bye-bye. Thank you. That that situation is kind of, you know, is, is as old as uh, recovery, um, except for in the AA realm, because obviously – this whole this whole venue of recovery got started with AA. That's right. Okay, and the AA concept was you know abstinence, one hundred percent abstinence, and so it wasn't until shall we dare say Daytop <laughs> <laughs> came on the scene, or well actually started with Synanon in California, but then Daytop um, that the you know, people using and be, being addicted to other drugs other than alcohol uh, came into the equation, and that that which then raised the question of whether or not, hey, you know, I was just a you know a heroin addict. I didn't even drink at all. So you know, other than on you know New Year's and whatever. So what's the deal with me just having a drink? Ultimately, it still comes down to considering all the factors that you named a personal decision. Right. If they're dragging you out of bars, you've answered the question. <laughs> exactly. So if you're back behind the dumpster, you've you answered the, answer the question. question. Um, I just want to hit the X Files real quick. I know we got a call, but um, Fermin wants to know why is it hard to have a relationship while being in an addiction? I think we uh-huh. got a similar question. Last week or the week before. You want to take that one? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I would start out by saying, typically, if you're in an addiction, whatever it is, you're that's ad- your girl, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> whatever it is you're addicted to is 
consuming the majority of your time, if not all of your time and energy, your mental space. The addiction itself is monopolizing your your time, your life. And if a substance or whatever that thing is that you're addicted to is that present and has that much control, you have that little of yourself to actually give to or offer to whomever it is you're in a relationship with. Relationships have a lot to, you know, a lot goes into a foundation of a healthy relationship, but I believe reciprocality is a major, major part, and you have to be able to give as much as you want to receive in a relationship for it to work, and you have to be able to be honest, and if you're in an addiction, and this is complicating things in your life, and you're not, you know, um, accomplishing things that you want to accomplish, and you're not as healthy of an individual as you want to be, you can't possibly give yourself to somebody else because you cannot even be there for yourself. Yep. Um, and so just by virtue of that, if the foundation of the relationship is unstable, everything you try and build up from that foundation is going to crumble yep. at some point. So that's kind of my, my take on it. And there's another good X-Files question right behind that real quick okay. before, we go, before we go back to the phones. Can it, this is from Kyle from Rancho Cordova. Can a recovering addict be a bartender and not relapse? So my first answer is yes, because it wasn't the guy on chairs uh, a bartender. An ex-alcoholic. Yeah, he was <laughs> No less. <laughs> um, now, I've heard this come up numerous times, and I've been actually been asked this by clients. You know, can I get a job as a bartender and so on and so forth? And the first question I ask them is, were you an alcoholic? And see, I, I'm the type of person that believes that if you, you know, there's two types in this recovery thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's don't tempt fate, and then there's me who says you should <laughs> you should construct yourself in your recovery where you could be in an elevator with 15 people smoking crack and it does not impact anything that you decide to do. Mm -hmm. So in effect, nothing, your environment, where you may go, where you may find yourself, will impact a decision that you make. So if you are a recovering alcoholic and you go to work as a bartender, the only thing, the only thing that could make you pick up a drink is that you choose to. However, however, it's hard to argue against the quip you made a week or two ago, mm -hmm. which is you hang out in the barbershop long enough, eventually <laughs> you're going to get your hair cut. You can get your hair cut. So okay, to me, yeah. it really depends on the individual. I think it really does, and it speaks to a point that you and I have mentioned before in having our own experience with the light switch moment, mm -hmm. where you this kind of feeling comes over. You've had an epiphany of sorts, and in that moment, you just become a different kind of individual, and I don't believe that everybody who's in recovery has necessarily had that moment. Even people who have had years and years and years and years clean, I still know of people who have a wealth of clean time who still struggle. Feelings and urges and 
and say, and, and say that they're 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 one day you know yeah, one, one day step away, away. One step away. Right, and so I think it really depends on how it hit you and how it it almost changed how you view life and how and and it's kind of like a deeper level thing that's hard to put into words. It's hard to articulate. But I think that also plays a major role as to whether or not you should put yourself in the position or be the don't tempt fate versus mm. you can be in an elevator with 15 people and it's not going to phase you. If you've had that moment where the mentality completely switches, you know, one thing I related to is there's some people in recovery, as long as they've been in recovery, who still need to wake up every morning and motivate themselves to do the right thing. Mm. And I look at it, you mentioned golf. We'll use the weekend golfer as an example. Mm-hmm. The person who loves to play golf does not have to be motivated to wake up at 6 a.m. on a Saturday to go play golf. Mm-hmm. This individual loves golf. This mm-hmm. is what he wants to do. He looks forward to getting up at 6 a.m. to get ready or 5 a.m. to go play golf. Mm-hmm. Whereas for others, you might have to drag yourself out of bed and fight it the whole way, and eventually you get there, but it was a challenge. Mm-hmm the same thing in recovery there are folks that still have to motivate themselves or or talk themselves through certain situations to make sure they want to be clean because ultimately they want to be clean this is just the process they have to go through to stay there Mm -hmm. other folks who have made that flip so to speak that the the proverbial light switch turning on you don't have to wake up and and walk yourself or talk yourself through that you're just now living a different kind of life Mm -hmm. and so i would say uh, what commandment number nine? Be honest, honest with thyself, or whatever commandment number nine is. Thou shalt be honest with thyself. You have to be genuine with yourself. To which, which person are you? Mm-hmm. Are you the individual with four, five, six, even seven years clean who still feels like you're one step away, mm-hmm. or have you made that flip and that switch, and it's not really something that occupies any mental space anymore? Exactly. And I would say if if you are the latter. Being a bartender, great. Go, you know, have fun. It's a late night job. You get to meet people. You're mm-hmm. social. You're going to make a good amount of money. Fine. If you are that end, other individual at the other end of the spectrum, still clean and great, and congratulations to you. You have to know yourself, and you probably don't want to put yourself in that kind of a position. Baskin Robbins. There you go. <laughs> All right. How are we on time, sir? We're good. All We're right. good. We got about. Fifteen more minutes. Okay, let's go to Ricardo from Redwood City. Welcome to Hello. the show. Hi, right, welcome. Thank you. Um, my question was, um, is it, so if I move away, like out of state, um, it would can that be helpful to my recovery? What do you mean? Like, um, will it be more healthy for me to stay sober, like if I was planning on moving out of state? It doesn't matter because it all really depends on you. Because you can move out of state, you can move out of the country. And you can find trouble anywhere you want. So if if you are about your recovery and you're committed to that and you have an opportunity to change your environment for, for positive and constructive reasons, um, then you take advantage of that. But you're doing that because it's an opportunity to better yourself. 
you're not doing that because, oh, I think this is going to save me. Yeah. Because it's not going to save you. Okay. All right. Yeah, that was my question. Okay. All right, thank you. You're very welcome. His his question was akin to people who, and, and I've had conversations in New York and out here in California with people who uh, want to go into the field of counseling others, right? Okay, yep. And after some conversation with them, you kind of, with some, you kind of get the feeling that they, they have a belief that by doing this, this is going to help keep me clean okay. and sober. Yeah. And I have to be the bearer of bad news that this in no way, shape, or form is going to do that, help that process, or whatever the case may be. No. Um, and, and many people, unfortunately, have gone into the field, you know, thinking that that was that's what was going to be the case, only to find out that that that's not the case. And as a matter of fact, it was a terrible decision, and they've ended up back down the same road. So, no, if you have an opportunity to move to you know greener pastures and, and and a better environment to better yourself um and it's for that reason absolutely but if you're trying to you know thinking that let me change you know time and distance doesn't work in recovery and you know you know changing of scenery just for the sake of let me get away from from the dope dealers you know external hey, changes don't mean a thing don't mean a thing the thing. faces change, the names change, but internally, if you haven't made that change, you'll find yourself in Antarctica flagging down the one and only drug dealer out there. Find the cop man. <laughs> That's it. Pulling up in his snowmobile. <laughs> what can I get for you? Right? What can I get for you? Coming out of what the you, igloo. What you need? What you need? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, you can find it anywhere on earth, so. Very true. Yeah, no, you got to make the do the internal work. Okay, let's go to uh, David from Redwood City. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Good. Can you speak up, David? I said, how's it going? Good, much better. Thanks. All right. Um, yeah, I had a question. Uh, I wanted to know how long it takes to quit withdrawing from methadone. It depends on the dose that a person is at. Give me an example. 30 milligrams. Okay, 30 is not bad um, in terms of a number. Um, it's on the lower end of the spectrum uh, from what we've seen specifically. So I would say um, normally when they're when they're we we call you know they call tapering someone down off of methadone they try and do two milligrams a week to minimize the you know withdrawal impact. So if you're 30, do the math, two milligrams a week. We're looking at 15, 15 weeks. Mm -hmm. And then you make allowances in there for maybe uh, as you get lower. or there, there, There's always a, maybe two or three times in there that maybe the drop, even though it's the same drop every week, two milligrams, but this particular drop, you know, felt a little, you felt it a little bit. So you kind of, you kind of just stay there for an extra week to give time to adjust before you drop down. So not long. You know, we're, we're talking three months max. That's about, yeah. Yeah, don't sound too bad at all. Sp speak up, Dave. I 
said that don't sound too bad at all. No, no, no. Okay, is it something yeah, you're thinking about doing? Is it something you're thinking about doing? Uh, I've already done it. I, I oh, okay. It at 30, so. Oh, okay. I just quit taking it at 30. But, yeah, no, that, that answers my question. And, and you're talking three months would be, um, that would be possibly getting my strength back and all that. Okay. Okay. Thanks for taking All right. The call. Sounds good. All right. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. You know, methadone is harder to taper off of than heroin. Mm-hmm. So, I he kind of shocked me with the when he I said give me give me an example number and he said thirty because I, we know so many people that are on like eighty yeah to ninety and, yeah exactly uh, and you know that can be a long drawn out uh, process so um, but I have no problem with people being on methadone as long as here's the caveat. And this is one of the reasons why the government kind of introduced it. You know, it's, it's a government-approved, regulated, um, what do you call it, <laughs> you know, exchange from one, you know, I mean, they're both opiate-based, but it's one, yeah, they, one medication to the next. The whole thinking is give up the life mm-hmm. that comes with the, the, you know, the chasing of the heroin and the whole right. nine. Um, get on this so that you out of, you're out of that rat race of that life, and hopefully you can start to rebuild your life. Um, but at some point, the piper still has to be paid, right? Unless you die on, you know, methadone. You know what I mean? Right. You 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 want to eventually? I don't think it was ever introduced to be a lifelong. Thing. Absolutely not. No, 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 no. For some, it's been, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, and it's like, and they might be living, you know, outside of that, they're living normal lives. Right. You know what I'm saying? But it's hard on the body. It is. It is. Have I talked about the Vancouver location on the show yet? When you were talking about the government's decision to kind of give up the life, and this is why they implemented it here, have I yet talked about the like heroin row in in Vancouver? No, no, no. Similar kind of concept, and there's actually for those of you listening who are interested, there's a pretty cool documentary about it. It's very controversial, but there is in downtown Vancouver, which is actually one of the highest per capita um, heroin use populations anywhere in the world. Um, these these little pop up. I think they're almost like nonprofit <clears throat> hospital type facilities mm-hmm. where these heroin addicts can come in daily, and these people know them by name usually, and they will give them a clean setup, mm-hmm. a clean tie off, a clean syringe, a booth or cubicle to mm-hmm. go and set themselves up and do what they have to do, a place to nap it off for the next hour or two. Mm-hmm. And their whole theory behind this is similar to what you were talking about, which is what made me think about it, is trying to take whatever kind of danger out of it you can, trying to remove whatever 
whatever might be dangerous in that lifestyle, the life that you spoke of, mm-hmm. and removing that from the sharing of needles and passing disease through mm-hmm. that way and, um, you know, things that go along with the lifestyle that are definitely not safe at all. Right. And removing that. Mm-hmm. And so there is in in an area of downtown Vancouver where the reporter walks throughout the documentary and there's tents set up and it's like a homeless encampment. Mm-hmm. But they're talking and, you know, doing interviews with the people. And so you get their, the addict's perspective and then they're going into these little medical sites and talking to the people who run them and the, and the workers there. And it's controversial because it can be argued either way how good that actually is mm-hmm. for the the overall problem, mm-hmm. but as far as solving a specific issue, this mm-hmm. is their goal, and so this is um, it's happening in in more places in different ways than just here with our methadone clinics. So the argument on the other side has been that um, so even even just you know the the cities that have needle exchange programs mm-hmm. that that just uh, causes them to continue to use and use and use and use and use. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, this is something that can be uh, argued from both extremes, mm-hmm. both poles, right? Hey, if you keep giving them a needle, they're going to keep using. And hey, at, at least if I give them a clean needle, they'll stop spreading hepatitis. They'll stop spreading the, the HIV virus. They'll stop, you know, right. endangering themselves and others, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So we, we're trying to uh, impact collateral damage not just damage to the person but that can affect other people down down the road right. okay and so both arguments you know both positions hold water the question is how can you bring those two positions together so close together that they become one almost you know? so right. to me to me they almost i know this wait is wait a second if you've got an idea that might take off here, I don't know if we want to put this on the air. Let's, we may want to talk off air about whatever it is you're about to disclose here. No, it already exists. I just don't think it's being exercised. And, and, and there are other reasons, which I'm not going to get into today. Okay, We can get into it another time. And it's somewhat controversial. In the methadone clinics, they, you know, part of the requirements of in order to be on methadone, is that you have to get counseling. Right. Okay. What is the purpose of the counseling? Is it to counsel them to the process of working off of this substance, or is it to counsel them just to this this ongoing thing? I, yeah. That's what it has always confused me. What, you know, what is the end game here? Right. Okay. So, to me... That's how they can come together if the end game is to eventually get them off of this substance, mm-hmm. then that's how you can bring them together. But if that's not the end game to the methadone clinics, right. and if there's another end game, whatever it is, I don't know what it is, I'm just saying, okay? If there's another end game, then that's they're gonna, the poles are going to stay apart. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. So I didn't come up with any new idea. Any, all right, any, good. Any million dollar Ralph Cramden <laughs> money making right, scheme? Right, exactly. Okay, all right. So we got enough time. We still got some callers on. Yeah, board. we can definitely knock one out at least. Unscreened. We're going. We're going. Rolling the uh, dice. Oh, we're going. Uh... Hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name, please, and your hometown? Uh, Nito 
Francisco. We're going to need you to speak up a little bit there, Nito. We're having a hard time hearing you. Oh, uh, Nito from South San Francisco. Beautiful, beautiful. Welcome. How can we help you, uh, sir? Uh, my question is, is my friend, she has hepatitis C, but I don't believe that she uses needles. And I was wondering, is that the only way that she can get hepatitis C or hepatitis? I won't say the that's the only way, but primarily among IV drug users, that is the main way that they get it. So what's... Uh, so when you say your friend your friend doesn't use needles, yeah, but she well, contracted. She's not, known, she's not known to use needles. Okay, that's I was a, just wondering if, if she she might have got it from like a different way. If, is there that's possible. But, but even your statement is different when you say she's not known to use needles. So e- either way, some way either. Either is from needle use or, I'm sorry, we shouldn't just say needle use, but infected needle use, um, or some other means, she contracted it. So we don't know. I mean, it's your friend. We don't know if she's being honest when she says, I don't use needles, I've never used needles, or whatever the case may be. And by the way, hepatitis is one of those diseases that, it's very rare that someone, so, you know, they're using heroin right now and they find out about it right now. It's usually 5, 10, 15, 25 years later that they find out, oh, my goodness, I'm hepatitis C positive. So, you know, if she's what been about a long time. Hepatitis. Say it again. What about just hepatitis? Well, there's A, B, and C. Yeah. So usually the drug users get C. And what about the other ones? The other ones are contracted differently. I, I don't know exactly, but the the one that drug users primarily contract is the hepatitis C through sharing needles. Yeah. We'll see that. So if she, very if she interesting. If, which what, what drug does she use? She she's more of like a meth user. Okay. And I've never known her to use any type of needles, but you know that's something that she was probably never honest about. Or I don't, I don't really know the situation. That's why I'm kind of like wary of wanting to hang around with her or anything. Well, it's contracted blood to blood. So. So if so, that'd be another one. If she was bleeding, somebody that has hepatitis C was bleeding. They both bleds were formed together. And that's well, usually that's that, that. Yeah. So usually that's why it's 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 spread via the sharing of needles because they stick the needle in their arm. Obviously, blood gets on the needle, and the next person takes the same needle, sticks it in their arm, and boom, there you go. They transmitted. What if they both, what, what if they both had cuts? It's not a really a thing of like, okay, you got a cut on your arm and I got a cut on my arm and we rub arms together. Well, yeah, I mean, yes. It, in, in, in a perfect world, if we rubbed cuts together long enough, blood-to-blood transfer can occur and it's possible 
who knows, 50%, 75% possible that the disease can transfer from one to the other. But usually among drug users, okay, that have hepatitis C, primarily 95% has occurred from needle sharing. Oh. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. So, I'm going to have to get back with her and see if yes. I can get her to, give, get her to be I'll, honest. I was just going to suggest that. You may need to have another conversation. Yeah. Well, okay. Cool. Thank you, man. I appreciate You're it. You're welcome. All right. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. So I was going to have to pull out the old uh, physician's uh, desk <laughs> reference for a second. Physician's handbook, huh? <laughs> That's, All right, that's it, man. Oh, we're done. Oh, I'm cutting you right off. I mean, you got about 20 seconds to address the well, audience if there's I'm any just burning desire. Say, well, I'm just going to say we're going to we're going to we're going to close today again um, in in tribute in memory of uh, Glenn Fry of the Eagles with uh, with their number one hit of all time, um, the album which uh, competed with Michael Jackson's Thriller. For the highest selling album in history, back and forth they went, back and forth they went. Um, Michael Jackson's album obviously is now in front because when he passed, his album said it will skyrocket it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this this is what uh, cemented them. This this uh, this song. Wonderful. All right. Well, again, we thank everybody who called in to listen and everyone who listened via other means. We do appreciate the continued support more than you could know. We do see we had one caller we couldn't get to today. We urge you to call back next week because we do want to be able to take your call. Uh, We'd like to wish everybody a great rest of the week and a safe and fun weekend. We will talk to you all next Tuesday.
big feast. They stab it with their stealing eyes, but they just can't kill the beast. our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4pm Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio.